The Marriage of Figaro or The Day of Madness, its second title, calls itself an opera buffa. It is therefore a comic <laughs> opera. It was composed in 1786 in four acts to a libretto by Lorenzo da Ponte, who, of course, writes two other libretti for Mozart. It's based on a stage comedy by Pierre Beaumarchais, La Folle Journée ou Le Mariage de Figaro. And notice how the titles are inverted. The play is called A Day of Madness and then The Marriage of Figaro. Maybe that's significant. Um, which was originally performed in 1784. This play caused Beaumarchais and the uh, French authorities, notably Louis XVI, enormous problems. Louis was determined the play was not to be produced, and it seems likely from the available evidence that it was actually Marie Antoinette who persuaded her husband to allow uh, a modest performance of the play. Louis knew perfectly well what the subject matter was that was causing problems. It was indeed Figaro's great last act speech about the uh, inequalities of class. As far as the opera was concerned, it was Mozart who approached Da Ponte and not the other way round, with the play as a subject for an opera. And Da Ponte, with astonishing speed, you may think, turned this libretto, uh, the book, the play into a libretto in a mere six weeks, rewriting it in poetic Italian and removing all the original political references that had caused Louis XVI uh, and his advisers such pain. And in particular, that climactic speech, which I've talked about, in which Figaro rails against the nobility. Uh, and he replaces it, of course, in the opera with an equally angry aria, but it's about unfaithful wives. Contrary to the popular myth, the libretto was improved, improved by the Emperor Joseph II before any of the music was written. There's sometimes, particularly if you've looked at Amadeus, a suggestion that the Emperor had his doubts about all of this, but he didn't. But we do need to remind ourselves as we listen to this opera that we are only four years away from the storming of the Bastille and the beginning of the French Revolution. Anyway, to help us explore the marriage of Figaro, we're joined this evening by Sheila Barnard, who's the production manager on Fiona Shaw's production here at Eno. Also by our own Figaro this evening, Frederick Long, who's covering the role, and Andrew Smith, who's a member of English National Opera's music staff. But our first guest is Jeremy Sams, who really is a kind of modern-day Renaissance man, a theatre and television director, a writer, a composer, and, of course, the author of tonight's English version, of Da Ponte's libretto. Will you please welcome Jeremy Sams. <laughs> Come have a seat. Jeremy, um, a very simple basic question. How do you set about turning Da Ponte's Italian into Jeremy Sams' English? Oh, gosh, I hope it's not too much my English. Um, it's, um, da Ponte is a really interesting writer. Um, but actually, the dramaturgy of the piece is really Mozart's. So Da Ponte, there's a sort of formula of Da Pontean um, rhymes and couplets. Very often it'll go A and there's another A rhyme and then there's a B and we go to a big C rhyme and then the C rhymes all agglomerate into big shapes. And that's what he writes in. He writes in chunks. And um, it's so interesting because we sort of get the idea, if we know Figaro, that, that he's written in terms of structure. He, for example, the massive Act Two finale, which is an amazing piece. Ponte hasn't done that. He's written a series of rhyming capsules, if you like. And what he's, what's then done is the sung bits, the, 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 not recits, but the arias. Mozart, it is, who turns them into shapes. Mozart, the dramatist, was the famous book in the 60s by Bridget Brovey, which everyone went, wow. 
But in fact, they should have gone, you know, duh, of course the composer is the dramaturg there. The speed of pieces, the way they unfold, the way numbers turn into other numbers, that's all Mozart's. So as far as I'm concerned, the trick then is to write, and this is a massive order, the libretto that if Mozart had received it in English, and he was a composer who understood English, actually he did speak English, um, he would have come up with this opera. Um, it's, a long, it's a long way to go. So the actual text, it's much easier, I think, to treat that as the, end pro the, the, the symptom rather than the cause. And if you can go back to what I hope is the causes and keep the shapes, and of course what's hard in English is the rhymes, because there's many, many, many of them, and rhyme in English is by definition self-conscious and humorous, actually. Um, very often a rhyme in English is pathetic. You, you hear it coming and it has a comic potential as you hear it coming. Not true at all in Italian. In Italian you can't order a meal without rhyming. Um, it's, it's quite impossible. So Italian is, is, a, is a language that rhymes absolutely naturally. All partis, past participles rhyme. Funny enough, French is the same. In English, rhyme is much more found. So the trick, particularly in Da Ponte, is to find three big rhymes and all of these these cells, I like to call them, which don't draw attention to themselves. So if you can find three rhymes that feel natural. Now, within that, you then have recitative. Recitative is effectively dialogue, but pitched. That's how I think of it. Except that in, in Da Ponte, he very often rhymes his dialogue as well. And very often, the rhymes are much more extravagant and actually very frequently comic within recitative. If you think of a Gershwin song, the verse will very often be a way in which the which Ira Gershwin will do a couple of rhyming tricks and then you get into the, the the rhyming or the words take a bit of more of a backseat for the tune, if you like. Similarly in recitative, particularly in the couplets that precede a number. As in Shakespeare, you'll get a couplet at the end of a scene leading into, when in Shakespeare's case, leading into the next scene, in Da Ponte's case, leading into an aria or a duet or some concerted number like that. So those are the different sorts of language. The other thing, of course, is that recitative skips along with any speed you like, um, whereas arias have to go at the speed they go. So the questions then come into play like vowels, <laughs> those things, um, and also consonants. But apart from that, it's no problem whatsoever. <laughs> the reason I say that is I suddenly remembered I did a sh uh, translation here years and years ago, and a singer who shall remain nameless said that he liked it, but that the vowels were different from the Italian. That's I'm sorry. And then he said, and also the consonants were different from the <laughs> So I thought, okay, well, apart from the vowels and the consonants, you think it's a great work. Um, but these things are important. So since we mentioned vowels, very often Da Ponte, who's very aware, because Mozart would have said, actually Mozart didn't need to tell Da Ponte this. Da Ponte was a much more experienced libretto writer than, than, than Mozart was. In fact, later in later in his life, he became the famous person, and, and he'd be famous for writing all sorts of other librettos for other operas. And even in the end of his life, when he ended up in, in uh, New York, of all things, he's a professor of Italian at Columbia University and also ran a salami business, um, selling Italian groceries in, in, uh, in New York, had a covered wagon, um, Luke Ponte's, um, Larry Ponte's salami wagon. I'm not making this up. And he is buried. When you go from JFK to, to um, Manhattan, you pass the area where he's actually buried in New York. Anyway, 
he would be famous a little bit for some for various operas. And he would say, yeah, there's this other guy called Mozart. And I promise you that my work for him was the best thing. And these operas, and they say, they, everyone said, we love Chimorosa, we love Soler, but we've never heard of this Mozart. So the expert was actually da Ponte. Um, but the, because the Ponte knew what he's doing, for example, at the end of numbers, particularly concerted numbers, when there's going to be a lot of coloratura, which means singers running around um, vocally, and in the case of this production, physically, um, you have to find a vowel there which is good for them. So very often it's an ah vowel. So da Ponte, who knows what he's doing, will end solar or uh, any, any verb that ends in ar. In fact, it should be are, but of course in Italian you can shorten them or lengthen them depending on, on uh, what's required. So I there have to find a vowel which is the same as the Italian. Similarly, on a high note, um, I will try and just replicate the vowel, basically because singer can't say, oh, this vowel's really hard to sing. I say, well, excuse me, look at the original. Um, that doesn't always work. In some areas, for example, in the magic flute, uh, Pamina's aria, she has a high B flat on an E vowel. And many singers said, you know, can you please find me a nicer vowel? And I sort of have to say, well, but it may well have been that the original Pamina actually liked to sing closed vowels up there. So that's another thing to bear in mind. And uh, this particular translation was first done a few years ago uh, in a production which Bryn Terfel was the first Figaro. Um, that was, gosh, maybe 20 years ago now. And I've updated it and changed it. And for every production, I've done little emendations. What have you done different for this one? Funnily enough, I, I did some new stuff um, when it was first done. This is a revival. I've even done some stuff for revivals. Often there are things for me that, that, that don't work. Or, for example, a director would say, I don't want this character be, to be self-indulgent or self-pitying here. OK, I'll toughen that up. Um, I want this character to be more insulting here. OK, I'll toughen that up. A production, for example, in the original production, actually, funnily enough, in this production as well, it's based very much on the idea of the stratification of class. So I was quite careful originally to make linguistic choices for each of the characters, because class is something we don't know much about Italy and about, you know, or indeed Seville, but we do know about class. We really do. So, so I was. I tried very hard to give the Count and the Countess a certain language, and then to give Susanna and Figaro other choices of words, which were more demotic, more middle class, if you like, or certainly, actually, they are. They are working class, maybe, but they aspire to to bourgeoisie. You've, this, the opera opens with them setting up house for God's sake, you know, and measuring up for their new house. It, this, it couldn't be more bourgeois in a sense. Actually, that's quite interesting. I almost see this opera as the rise of the bourgeois as much as the rise of the working class. Um, Figaro isn't burning the place down. He's, he's, he's making a bed <laughs> at the top of the show. Um, and then you have Antonio, who, although he's Figaro's, um, sorry, Susanna's uncle and Barbarina's uh, father, therefore, he's the gardener. So I gave him slightly more demotic, slightly ruder language. But again, in a different production, the director might say, I don't like that that aspect of it. So if it's a new production, I'll always try and change it. Funnily enough, there's a new one happening at Opera North quite soon, same 
same, trans same translation. And that director, who's also someone I know well, said, oh, can, it, can we a bit, bit more of this and a bit more of that? And I'm always happy to change it. And also for myself, because I did this one 20 years ago, and I I'm, I'm think I'm better at it now. And I'm certainly less self-advertising now. I thought in the old days I, would, I must show my stuff, and that's... I was younger, you know, you do stupid things like that. So nowadays I'm trying to get my uh, uh, Sam's, since that's the name you mentioned, voice, out of it much more now, and, and to make it much more neutral. Funnily enough, um, it's the third De Ponte I've done did a cozy which happened, but a new Giovanni, which had happened about three years ago. And that was very customized for a production. In fact, it had, that translation hasn't been used since because it was so specifically for, for, for translation. You, you talk about class, you talk about, about how we should see Figaro and Suzanne really maybe as part of the rising bourgeoisie. Um, that's a quite different politics from the way we've sometimes read the opera. I mean, as I said in my introduction, um, Da Ponte cuts the great aria about the, 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 the impossible nobility. Um, but we've generally seen the piece as the kind of the rumbling of tumbrils at the doors of the album of Eva Estate. You obviously don't see it in quite that way. Interestingly, the comments that are made on, about class uh, are the ones which are most telling are from the top down. Both the Countess and the Count say during the opera how tough it is. Well, um, the Count often, in his act, big act three aria, says a lot about how my underlings are going against me. Um, beautifully and rather wonderfully, the Countess's aria, Dovisono, in the recit that precedes that, straight before she sings the amazing Dovisono, um, she says, How terrible that I've had to conspire with the servants. And actually, throughout, people are saying, we mustn't let the servants see this. So, th so it's not so much that, that, the, that the Almaviva household is crumbling, but the divisions are seeping. But actually, if you look at Downton Abbey, you'll see that the servants are the people who see it. They're present at every meal, and every time a corset is taken on or off, they are there. So actually, and again, this, in the Act Two finale, the Count is always saying, a scandal is unthinkable. We mustn't have a scandal. So I see not so much a world falling apart, driven by the, by the working class, if you like, more the upper class trying to hold it all together. Significantly, however, the big scandal of the story is the idea of the droit de seigneur, which is always rather tricky for any production that's not set anywhere but in 18th century somewhere because the idea that you get to have sex with someone on their wedding night, um, by which I mean not your wife, but the, another, another person's wedding, um, which of course is very present in, in Don Giovanni, as we know. Um, the point about this story is that that has just been abolished. So the idea of, of feudalism is actually being taken away, not by, the, by, by, the, by Hoi Polloi, but by the Count. And of course, as it says rather neatly, he abolishes that tradition. Someone else will say he regrets the abolition, meaning, yeah, he wishes he hadn't. But maybe because of social pressure, the Count is in many ways a reforming aristocrat, much as he regrets it. So I think it's much more complicated than, 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 than the French Revolution, the tumbrils and what. To be honest, that's complicated enough, the French Revolution. Turning <laughs> to, 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 to your own work, with the libretto, are there moments when, and I like to think it's when I, when I watch or hear your libretti, uh, when you sit down 
smile at what you managed to do when you've done a particularly good and rather unexpected rhyme. When there's a moment when you made a wonderful joke that didn't quite immediately present itself to you but has emerged. Are there those kind of moments of personal pleasure you're doing this? What I'm after is to, if there's a laugh in the original, I want it to get the laugh which the original had. It's as simple as that. And I'll give you an example of that. Years ago, I translated a play by Anouilly called Beckett, a uh, play about Beckett. Um, and Anouilly's, that's how they thought of the title, Anouilly's uh, widow came to see the show and she said, I loved your translation, it's a fantastic translation. And I said, that's very sweet of you. I do notice, however, you don't speak any English. <laughs> and she said, all the laughs were in the right place and the, la and the right length. Now, I'm not blowing, my own, not blowing my own trumpet there, that, but actually, that's almost how I would define a good translation, that the effect it has on this audience, including pathos, including pain, and including, I hope, the odd little giggle. Um, and um, I hope that that has an effect on this audience the same. Having said that, you'll watch it tonight in stony silence, I'm sure. Um, but that is the, that's certainly the hope. But only when either the character is playing for time, making a joke because he's trying to be clever, or it has to be character-led and not translator-led. I, I love the idea, Jeremy, of Madame Henry sitting with a stopwatch, <laughs> stopwatch timing the laughter. But no doubt, that's all she knew, though. That's all she knew. Yes. <laughs> Jeremy, thank you very much. Stay with us, and, and, and I'm, there'll be, we'll be have a chance for questions afterwards. Jeremy, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. <clears throat> Ladies and our second guest, uh, Frederick Long, the bass baritone, who's covering the role of Figaro in this production, and Andrew Smith, who's a member of English National Opera's music staff. Will you please welcome them? Them both now. <clears throat> Frederick, some questions first before, before you, you, you sing for us. Um, do you think, as you think about Figaro, that we need to understand, and need, you need to understand, that there is a history between Count Almaviva and Figaro that, that is important? Well, I wouldn't want anyone to panic that they haven't read the three Beaumarchais plays. Uh, it, it, it's not that important, and I think Figaro can be enjoyed absolutely as it is without any of that knowledge. I think what is useful and is quite nice to know from Barbara of Seville is that Figaro didn't always used to be in the Count's employ, and indeed they were good mates. Um, he, he was his servant, then he was released um, in Barber, and, he's, and we find him in Barber as a, a factotum, a, a fixer, a, a literally a barber as well. Um, but uh, once it gets to, and, and indeed in Barber, Figaro is um, responsible for getting the count together with his now wife, Rosina, the countess. So he was responsible for making the count extremely happy. We get to Figaro, and he's back in the Count's employ. But knowing that does change how we see their relationship. And there are a couple of moments, I don't think it's hugely important, but there are a couple of moments, in this production especially, where it really tells. And one of them is rather beautifully done, I think, um, after Non Pion Dry, which is in fact the aria I'm going to sing for you in a bit. Figaro and the Count have been having a fantastic time at Carabino's expense. The Count, as I'm sure you know, has sent Carabino off to war as a way of getting rid of him because he's found him uh, playing with the girls in the castle once too often. And, uh, and during the course of this aria, they're absolutely falling about laughing um, as 
the petrified Carabino is told all about the horrors of war that he's just been sent off to. And afterwards, they, they're falling about, and, and then there's a look as the music plays out and the military march plays out, and there's a look between the Count and Figaro. And you see that history. You see the, the friendship. And you think, goodness me, if, if the Count just sticks out his hand now and says, sorry, mate, we've had some great times. I'm going to stop going after Susanna. Let's end it there. I mean, we'd miss out on a lot more great music, which would be a shame, and it would be a rather short opera. But it, it, it's almost like it, it's, it's reachable, um, but, of course, the Count's just too proud. I wonder also whether Figaro himself has changed. I mean, Jeremy's reminded us that when we first meet him, he's busy measuring to make sure that the bed that's going to be his wedding presents will fit, while Susanna is busy singing about her brand little new hat. Mm. In other words, this couple are slightly different socially and slightly more secure than the Figaro that we've known before. They are moving into a kind of, uh, Jeremy used the word bourgeois, into a kind of middle-class world of things and objects and possessions. Yeah, I think Figaro is, is definitely more domesticated by this point. But Figaro, Figaro likes being uh, considered as a man who can get things done and as a fixer. And I think that still is the case as we move through into the marriage of Figaro. And I think that's the reason why he's so willing to accept the Count's reason for giving him this special bedroom is so he can be uh, extra useful, so he's right on hand for, um, for whenever the Count might need him. And he thinks, oh yes, of course, that's because I'm so good at my job. And uh, I'm such a useful chap to have around. Um, and as we find out very quickly, Susanna is on it like that and immediately sees through the Count's uh, real motives. If, if he's really a fixer, um, the, the thing that emerges by the time we reach the last act is this is a man of extraordinary powerful emotions, a man who feels really deeply. I mean, it's impossible not to be moved by that last aria, isn't it? It is. Um, it's a tough one, actually, um, playing Figaro, because, actually, that final aria, he's just flown off the handle. He's a jealous man in, in as hot-headed a way as the Count has shown himself to be. And we are supposed to sympathise with Figaro, but the truth is, this is actually not very impressive. Um, you know, he's some flimsy evidence about uh, seeing Susanna with this pin or whatever. He's been with Susanna and the Countess plotting all day, and he doesn't think to just go up to his darling wife, who you'd think he should know adores him, if, if we're to really believe in their relationship, and, and we have to for the, for the opera to work. And yet, instead, he just jumps to the most ridiculous conclusion. Oh, she must have been betraying me all along, and all women are all the same. Um, so that's actually quite a tricky one to, to play as Figaro. Um, I don't know whether we want to blame it on a couple of glasses of champagne that he's had at his reception, so he's a, or whether it's saying more about sort of continental men. Uh, I don't know. But, um, yes, well, quite. Um, but no, it's, it's, it's got to be judged, it's judged right. But yes, of course, he's, a, he's an incredibly uh, emotional chap. How demanding for the singer is this role? It's a big role. It's a big role. Um, you're involved a lot, and you've got to save your best singing till the very end, in a sense. You've got to be absolutely there. You can't. You can't blow it all in the first uh, in the first half. So you know, two and a half, three hours into to the opera, um, that final aria, and then the Act Four finale that we're talking about contains some of the most incredible music for Figaro. Um, 
But, I mean, for a young, for a young bass baritone like myself, it really is the absolute ultimate, really. Um, you, can, you, can, you can play it young and not have to have so much makeup to make you look 25 years older as often you have to, um, you know, most roles for low voices, as, as I'm sure you know, um, often tend to be for rather older men. And as you can see looking at me, you don't even have to be able to grow a very convincing beard. <laughs> so really, it's, uh, it's, it's an absolute joy to play. It's, it's an incredibly physical uh, production, this. Um, poor old David's been throwing himself about all the place, tumbling, and uh, it's, it's very active and involving, but really, it's a pleasure. You're going to sing on Pure Drive. Indeed I am. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, while we're getting ready, you can see um, photographs from the production here on the screen, so you can get a sense, a preview of what you're going to see tonight.
Robert, Rick and Andrew, thank you both very much. Wonderful. Rover, Casanova, over. You know, what pleasure the Casanova one in the middle gives us. Thank you, Jeremy. Our final guest this evening is Sheila Barnard, who is the production manager on this production of The Marriage of Figaro. Will you please welcome Sheila Barnard? Sheila, tell us a little bit about what you do as a production manager, what your, what your job is as you see it. Well, as you know, I'm specifically responsible for the set. So everything physical that is scenery, flooring, revolve, that's my remit. But I also have to liaise with all the departments. Um, this is a big organisation with a strong departmental structure, so every area of expertise has a group of people, sound, video, lighting, whatever. And indeed, the stage itself is... Each show has two stage supervisors on it. So I liaise between all those people to make sure that we're not creating a car crash of a schedule. And what stage do you get involved with the production? If it's a new production, then I would probably come in at the first model showing when the concept that the director and the designer have will be presented to the artistic team here and so forth, and before it goes into the dreaded process known as costing. Um, <laughs> if, it's, um, if it's an existing production, I will come in quite late. On this one, I came in about six months before because we have a new revolve involved, and that um, involved more pre-production than usual. We'll come to the revolve in a moment, mm. but you, I'm told that, uh, that by, by Little Birds that you have a reputation for being the person they send for when there are complicated and difficult sets involved. Is that true? It's, it's become a sort of E&O joke, really, because the very first production I did did involve getting a piece of scenery into the building that was basically too big. So I had to have a crane and a special lorry and all yeah. sorts of bits of stuff. And then, lo and behold, this happened again on another show. So that's... And I'm quite happy hiring cranes and getting <laughs> chaps in yellow, yellow high-vis jackets to um, spin bits of scenery in the air and stop the traffic and everything. It's quite fun. So, um, I love this idea of you kind of on the phone with yet another crane being ordered. <laughs> absolutely. Well, we've got an account with the crane company now. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the, the new revolve. What was wrong with the old revolve? Uh, the old revolve was borrowed or rented from the opera house and it, it was old, it was electric and it wasn't powerful enough. So it was unreliable during the course of the run. And once or twice had to be sort of pushed. And, and why is the revolve essential to this particular production? We can see the, the model here, and we can see that there's a revolve in the set, but why, what is it about this production that makes the revolve so important? That's a really tricky question, because that involves going into the mind of the production team. I mean, there are many things the revolve can bring to a production. Um, dynamism, a sense of a journey, seamless scene changes, if you're lucky. But um, really how a revolve is used is a matter for the director and the designer. They have come up with that as the solution because Figaro goes through four very specific locations. When I did it as a student, we managed with two chairs and a couple of pot plants. But um, um, it's um, to create the world they wanted to create um, without massive intervals and so forth. That was the solution. Devised. Uh, and what is special about the new revolve? 
Well, first of all, it's hydraulic, which makes a big difference because it runs on the in-house power system. Um, it's lightweight. It's been made as an investment piece because it's um, at full diameter, it's nine meters, but there's a smaller revolve within that. And it could be used in either format. So effectively, you've got two revolves for the price of one, which for future use in other productions. It's very lightweight comparatively, and it um, for storage, I mean, I'm sure you understand we have a repertoire system here, which means that the show you see tonight, five minutes after cutting down, it will be literally being taken to pieces. We're not a modern opera house with lots of side stages where you press a button and tonight's set just zooms off into the wings. We are in a very lovely 19th century, utterly inappropriate theatre with no wing space at all. So everything is taken to pieces. And... Um, that means this huge piece of engineering has to be taken to pieces, and two bits of it, the large central semicircles, are actually flown into the grid for storage, which so, all works So they're up above, at the top, above, above the stage? Yes, at the far <coughs> end of the stage, at the very back, we've got an area which we call the storage only. So they're up there, and those are along with bits of fantula and other assorted scenery. Is the Revolve, I mean, now an essential part of what every opera house has? I mean, we, you talked about the opera house and how you borrowed theirs. We know about the Revolve at the National Theatre in the Olivier. I mean, is this what, what grand theatres have to have? I think it's what they had to have in the 19th century. They were very popular then. Um, and but um, they're not used that often these days. They, the one at the National gets used because it's there. We now have the option of designing with one, um, and it's good to have one in, available. But it'll be interesting to see when its next outing is. And can this one, like the one at the National, rise so that you can create a set under in the revolve itself? No, this is, this is very firmly sitting on the floor. And, um, you know, lightweight, falls into pieces, back on the lorry. And, and how fast can it go, says he, with his train, train set mentality? <laughs> The, how fast it goes and how many people you can put on it and all these sort of questions are... There are a lot of variables involved because, basically, it will go as fast as the amount of power you give it. So if we put both the motors, both the pumps that ENO has, and it would go zooming round. At the moment, it's set to go at one revolution per minute, which is actually very fast for a revolve. Um, but you... Can you transfer that into miles per hour for, for no. fools like me? You know? No. <laughs> but is well, that walking pace? It's faster than walking pace. I mean, when, if you're moving off the revolve while it's revolving, you have... You know, if you just walked, you'd fall over. Mm. So there's a lot of training and familiarisation for people who have to do that. And, and how many people can you put on the revolve before... The unthinkable happens. Well, it depends whether you want it to go or not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, the, static, the, the static load is 500 kilograms per square metre, which is the same as any stage, any floor. You know, you can pile people up. You could put four people on a square metre and it would all be fine. But um, it, you have to take into account how much does the scenery weigh. I mean, there's two tonnes of floor on that revolve. Gosh before you even start putting, then there's some scenery, that's probably another couple of tons, and then there are lots of people. But 
it will take all of that, it, depending on how fast you want it to go. I mean, if they wanted it to go spinning around, first of all, that wouldn't be very safe, and people would start falling off, and the scenery would... But um, it's, so it's, it's, there isn't a straightforward answer. I mean, you could, if it had no scenery on it and a very lightweight floor, you could cover it with people. If you've got a big, heavy lump of scenery, then fewer people. But presumably someone has to be consulted about whether you have lots of people and light scenery or lots of heavy scenery and few people. I mean, there must be kind of yes. rules that have to be observed. Yes, they have to. I mean, the, you would give the design parameters if it were being used again. So that it depend. But it, as I say, all the variables would be taken into account as it goes as the process goes along. And, and the singers who are working on the revolve, and you've talked about stepping off, I mean, do they have to be kind of, as it were, rehearsed through how the revolve works? Yes, we had the revolve down in the rehearsal studio and a sort of mock-up and bits of the set. So they had a month of familiarisation before they actually had to come and be on the stage with it. And that's very essential because you have to get utterly familiar with this. I mean, that's one way of minimizing the risk of using a thing like a revolve is to, um, it's called training. And um, we do a lot of it, <laughs> or rehearsal. And I don't know, are, are, are we British rather good at building? I'm going to fly flag here, but are we British good at building revolves, or is it Europeans who are better at it? Where, where, where did this come from, this revolve? This was made in Haverhill in Suffolk, and there is a whole cluster of brilliant engineering firms in that part of the world. They're known as the Thetford Mafia, um, and they all span off at various times from one or two. There used to be a organization called Hall Stage, which was the organization which put all the fly towers and all the flying systems into theatres. Um, we're very, very good at um, this sort of engineering, theatre technology. Um, British companies, and indeed the company that made this, um, does a lot of work in European opera houses as well. That's not to say that the Germans don't have a fighting chance of making a good revolve. <laughs> um, has it been fun uh, reviving this production figure on a better revolve? Well, I didn't do the first version, <laughs> so it's quite challenging to take on somebody else's show because there are always lots of little things that never get written down about why certain decisions were made. And the new revolve was a bit higher than the old revolve, so all the existing surround floor had to be raised up and a lot of, um, lot of little things had to be done. Um, I've been, I, I hardly dare say this, but I mean, so far we've been very pleased. The revolve had a few teething problems, which were nothing to do with it, but the power system seems to be fine. Lots of wood to touch, yep. But it's always nerve-wracking. The whole production is dependent on a large piece of engineering and a hydraulic power. Um, you expect your car to go when you turn the ignition. Sometimes it doesn't. And, that, and the whole idea, too, is that we, watching, shouldn't ever be aware of it, should we? It should be an illusion. That we don't think, gosh, this is a very sophisticated, expensive and cumbersome piece of engineering that is now about to turn round. In other words, we come for illusions. You do come for illusion. You can't ignore the revolve, but yes, that's not what you think of. You're watching the dynamism of the production, the scene changes and so forth. Sheila, thank you very much. Indeed. My pleasure. Um, we, have a, we have a little time in hand, ladies and gentlemen, so if anyone would like to ask 
any of our uh, quartet of guests a question, that would be splendid. We have a question there, Ms. Second Row. The microphone is roving towards you. Question for Figaro. Um, you look as though you could still be at university. Um, <laughs> uh, I just wondered, how, A, how many years of training you've had, and B, is this your first major role? Hi, I'm, I'm 28, so I might be a little older than I look, um, <laughs> there or thereabouts, um, which, as I've touched on, isn't always the best thing for someone with a low voice. Um, I'm sure I will get rugged uh, eventually, but I'm not sure that's the word you used to describe me now. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I did an undergraduate music degree, and then I did four years of postgraduate study at the Royal Academy, and then I've just finished another year um, at the National Opera Studio. So I could almost be a doctor, probably. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I know which one's more useful, um, but I wouldn't have singers, it, have it singers, any other way. Singers, singers. Yeah, yeah, singers, singers, singers. Um, and this is one of the most prestigious uh, things I've been asked to do. Absolutely, covering title role at ENO is an unbelievable opportunity for someone um, like me, so I'm extremely grateful to be here. Ha ha ha. Do we have another question? Someone else would like to ask anything. We're going to be English and sit on our hands. And we're in the front row. The microphone is coming towards you, sir. Quick follow-on question, really, which is, as covered, are, are there some dates in which you will perform? Is that the way it works? Uh, no, I don't expect to perform. We um, actually just earlier this week had a, a, a run of our, of our own. Unfortunately, um, we're, we're not um, allowed on set, mainly for sort of health and safety reasons, and obviously uh, budgets, etc. And with ENO having so many shows on the go at once, it's, it's not always feasible. Um, but we do, get a, we do get a go at it, uh, at least in the, in the studios in, in West Hampstead. Um, but no, uh, God willing, David will be absolutely fine, but if he's not, I'm on the end of the phone. <laughs> Do we have another question for anybody? Would anybody like to ask? Uh, is it Jeremy? Jeremy, yeah. yes. Um, when you were talking about sort of resisting the urge to um, put your own stuff into um, your writing, I, it just occurred to me, I wondered if, if there were ever times when um, you might just felt feel that a, a part of the, the libretto is, or any part, is just a bit deficient or flat and actually there is room for, you know, you do allow yourself perhaps to try and boost it beyond the original. Yes, uh, whether I'd uh, tart things up a bit. Um, <coughs> I, the fact is that, that we're talking about different languages and different traditions and different necessities. And sometimes, of course, you want to just pep things up a bit, but only because you feel that that's what the show needs. <clears throat> Not that's what I need or anything like that, but, but, but certainly if a feeling of, of let's say, um, disrespect is in the air, then linguistically, particularly in the English language, actually it's an interesting point because Italian, basically they have <clears throat> less than half the number of words that we do. So even by, you know, in fact, all languages do. We have two languages on top of each other. We have an Anglo-Saxon language, we have, a, we have a, a Romance language. So a thesaurus, for example, exists in the English language in no other language. We've got a massive number. So to translate, uh, you're not like translating, you're making a choice in every word you use, practically. So whether I say jealous or envious or, or, you know, or any number of words, even by the act of translation, a critical choice is being made. 
And that's the nature of the English language. And that's why Italians are good at love, love stuff, and we're good at contracts. And <laughs> <laughs> because the niceties of language are what, we, what the English language is great for, but simple statements like, I love you, and I'm going to die, sound silly if sung in straight English sometimes. That's why I think for so many years, particularly in this country, we paid Italians to do our feeling for us. <laughs> Now there's a question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, some 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 thank yous, but first of all,